Creating your own reality. Is it possible for me? I am Jennifer Cahill, the Consciousness Architect, and I am here to tell you that it's not only possible, it's closer than you might think. Welcome to the show. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Regarding Consciousness. I am Jennifer Cahill, and I am so happy to have back on the show old friend who I got to know several years ago during the pandemic, Dr. John Demartini, the author of numerous books. In fact, we were laughing. I was mentioning one of his most recent books, and he's, Jen, no, I've written seven books since then. I was like, John, I can't keep up. Between you and Deepak, you're both putting out more books than most of us can count. So John is an expert and leading authority on human behavior and personal development. He is the founder of a private research and education organization called the D. Martini Institute, which hosts a curriculum of more than 72 courses covering multiple aspects of human development. In addition, he's an internationally renowned speaker, and Dr. D. Martini travels the globe, as he just told me. He's joining us right now, I think, from the Caribbean and offering seminars to hundreds of thousands of followers and participated in the wildly popular movie, The Secret. The best-selling author of 40-plus books published in 28 languages, Dr. Demartini has also produced more than 50 CDs and DVDs explaining how to achieve fulfillment, true success in relationships, education, being, and in business. Thank you so much, Dr. Demartini, for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So my friend, you are a prolific writer, thought leader. We find ourselves in such a fascinating time right now. I get so many emails and phone calls from people who are distressed about the state of the world. Given your wide breadth of wisdom, what would you share with people right now who might be struggling mentally, physically, emotionally with the state of the world? What would you suggest? I like to think of it as like a magnet. If you... uh cut the magnet in half and try to see only one side and get one side, the other side comes with it. You get a positive and negative and a positive and negative. And the same thing for events in life. If you happen to choose to be conscious of the downsides and not the upsides of something, that's a subjectively biased choice you're making. You're not taking the time to look at the upsides and the opportunities that are always present. And if you also look at the upsides and don't look at the downsides, you could be cast away by impulses of infatuation. Wilhelm Wand, who is the father of experimental psychology about 130 years ago, stated that when you're able to see both sides simultaneous and be mindful instead of mindless and seeing only part of it, uh, you're stable. But if not, you're going to be run by the external world and you're going to be swayed by the assumptions that there's something terrific or terrible going on as something not present. And I'm a firm believer of looking for both sides. So our intuition is trying to point out when we're infatuated, the downsides to humble us and to humble our perceptions, to get us back in stability. And if we're down, it's trying to find meaning and upsides to it. So I always say, whatever you're perceiving, look for its opposite, recenter yourself. There's, there's just, there's a lot of conflict going on in the world. There's also massive movements to try to bring order and peace and cooperation. So I, I just look at those calm down when the conflicts calm down. They always come as a pair. So when I look for both and I see both, I see that we're just morphing and transforming. And the master lives in a world of transformation, not the illusions of gain and loss or positives and negatives by themselves. There's always two sides to it, like a yin and yang symbol. 
Yes, it's beautiful when you say it that way. What I'm hearing you say, let me repeat this back to you, Dr. Demartini, is that when we see atrocities or sadness or hardship in the world, whether it's wars going on or loss and starvation and things like that, it can be very easy to become myopic and fixated on what's missing or what's wrong. And yet what I'm hearing you say is rather than having these juxtaposed light and dark perspectives, is to hold both in your consciousness simultaneously. So yes, there is great hardship and sadness and pain in the world. And simultaneously, there is beautiful joy and magic and miracles happening. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. See, in, in Buddhism, there was a great statement, the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. When you're infatuated something, and you look up to it, you minimize yourself, you're too humble to admit what in them is inside you. You seek with an impulse in your amygdala to go, I got to have that, I got to have that. And then when you get there, you discover the downsides. So why have the wisdom of the ages with, with the aging process when you have the wisdom of the ages without knowing that there's two sides? It's a yin and yang. You're just blinded by your infatuation. And the same thing when you think there's atrocities or terrible things. There's also great opportunities and new philanthropies that are being born and if you see one and don't see the other, you'll be swayed by an external world. Anything that we infatuate or resent with, and we have only one-sided views of, it occupies space and time in our mind and runs us. Our amygdala assigns valency to our hippocampus, stores it in the subconscious mind, and makes us now impulsive or instinctual instead of intuitive and inspired. But if we see both sides, we liberate ourselves from the bondage of those misperceptions and give ourselves permission to move forward with an awareness in the middle path, as the Buddha said, the middle path, seeing that it's not attached to either of those two illusions. So I'm a firm believer that there's an opportunity. I, I was sitting in South Africa one time, and I had a three Palestinian leaders and five Israeli leaders in my room. And my job was to mediate a, this conflict that was local there. Those are when I stand and I get started, this lady says, Dr. Martini, do you believe in absolute evil? And I said, no. I said, absolute evil is a very subjectively biased interpretation of reality. I said, absolutely not. And she goes, says, I do. And I said, maybe that's why you spent 14 years trying to resolve a conflict that's not going anywhere because <laughs> you keep making somebody evil. And I said, so what exactly do you think this individual's done that's so evil? And she says, they're intolerant. And in, in biblical writings in Romans 2, it said that beware of judging somebody else because whatever you judge in them, you do the same thing. And I said, are you able to see that you're doing the same thing right now? And she says, no, I pride myself on never being intolerant. <laughs> I said, you may be overlooking where you're intolerant. I certainly am intolerant. I go to the restaurant. If they don't get my food in a certain period of time, I get irritated. When I go to the, 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 the airlines and they have delays, I get irritated. I'm intolerant all over the place. And she said, well, that's, that may be true in those settings, but not this setting. And I said, let's go and look at where you're in tolerance. And so I made her go through and dig in her life to find it. And I had to humble myself and just point out all my intolerances. Finally, she we got 39 lists of intolerances. And when she did that, she got a tear in the eye and she goes, I was really self-righteous when I and said, yes, you were. And that's not going to get you negotiation or dialogue. It's going to get you monologue and it's going to get you resistant because anybody who's proud is going to get humbled. And so I said, now let's go one step further. Let's go to a moment when this individual was all intolerant. Yeah. I said, what's the benefit of that? She goes, well, there's no benefit of that. How could you say there's a benefit? I said, no, there's two sides to everything. What's the benefit of intolerance? 
This gentleman's intolerant. Now, the guy that she's talking about is in the room six feet away. She's despising this man in the room who's also despising her. And I've got this thing. And you walk in the room, you could have a, a knife sit in the middle air because the energy was so tight. I said, so what's the benefit of him being intolerant? So let's go to an exact moment when this man was intolerant. I can't see any. There is none. I don't know. So it sounds like you're intolerant of this intolerance here. Let's take a look again. And I said, could it be this? Could it be this? I said, before you met this man and knew about this man, what were you doing? She says, I was a housewife. I said, and once this happened where this guy was intolerant and this event that you thought was so traumatic happened, what happened to your life? I, I started reading and I started studying and learning and I got involved in a movement and then I became a leader of the movement, and I wrote a book. And then I I said, so you're now a book author. You're now hanging out with leaders in the world. You're now hanging with prime ministers and things like that. Your your kids are now had enough money because of all that to be able to go to school. And, and I started listing about, gosh, 32 different benefits. And she said, and I said, do you, do you even have that movement if it wasn't for this intolerant guy? She goes, that's a good point. I said, did you give him a cut of your royalties? <laughs> she goes, no, I didn't. I said, you don't even have a book. You're leveraging his brand right now to sell that book. Come on. And anyway, I had her laughing. And finally, she broke down in tears again. And she goes, I never would have imagined that there's just as many upsides as there are downsides right now. I'm not angry. And I said, I know. You chose to see one side without the other instead of seeing both sides simultaneously. The moment you do, you're liberated from the emotional bondage of the amygdala and its valencies and your impulses and instincts of your gut. And you're now able to intuitively listen to your heart and see both sides. And she went and literally cleaned up her makeup off because her makeup was crying. And while she did, the guy came up to me and says, I could have sworn she was talking about me. And I said, she was. She was <laughs> I was really angry with her when I walked in here. But when I was listening to you give her hell in there, it says, I've been looking at my own life and realizing I'm judging her. I'm doing the same thing. And I said, that's the whole purpose of this meeting to make you realize that until you can see that you're both reflections of each other, you're not going to get anywhere. And this, this illusion that you're trying to create this mediation is BS. What you're really doing is getting your pride met by having a bunch of followers look up to you and, who are angry, and you're now supporting a bunch of angry people. Get real and honest with yourself if you want to make this thing mediate. We had a mediating. We had some results as a result of that. But they, until they actually reflect and look inside instead of project false attribution biases and false causalities on the outside and dissociate from their own causalities, they're, they're, they've created this in their own illusion because there is no event out there that's one-sided. There's just a neutral event until we choose to see only one side. It's so beautiful, Dr. Martin. It reminds me one of my favorite things that I read constantly is uh, I studied Kabbalah among many different spiritual disciplines, Buddhism, and other things. And one of my favorite Kabbalistic concepts is a 72 names of God technique called sweetening judgment. And it says that though we're not aware of it, any negative behavior, even if it seems minor, brings destructive forces into play. Whenever we speak in an uncivil or rude manner, Whenever we cheat, lie, steal, harm other people, we create a force of judgment. And these negative forces are the unseen cause behind all the things that, quote unquote, just happen to go wrong in our lives. It may take minutes, months, or even years, but eventually we must confront the consequences of our reactive deeds. So what I love that goes on to say is it says, right now, obstacles present in our lives are because of the force called judgment. And judgment befalls us to the degree that we inflict judgment upon other people. But Kabbalah teaches that our own words cannot serve as an indictment against ourselves. 
we cannot decree a judgment against our own being. Life, therefore, is cleverly arranged so that we constantly meet and befriend people who commit errors and sins similar to our own. When we judge them, in that moment, our own fate is sealed. But suppose if we could refrain from judging friends, family, and undeserving foes, if this were possible, judgments against us would never come to pass. And I really, to the best of my ability, try to live my life by that. I, I went into the Oxford English Dictionary 39 plus years ago, because I started noticing that whatever I was saying to other people, I was talking to myself half the time. And then I realized everything I'm judging in them, where do I have it? So I, instead of me waiting to find out and react on my buttons, I figured I'd just go to the dictionary and just underline every possible human trait. I found 4,628 individual traits. Now, I'm a neurotic guy, as you can imagine. Imagine going through and literally circling or underlining every possible human trait. And then I went out there and I thought, who do I know that's the most extreme example of that person, that trait that I'm aware of, that's not just hearsay, but me really interacting with? And I wrote their initial out there. And then I said, all right, John, go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating that same specific trait, action or inaction that you despised most in them or admired most in them. And where did you do it? When did you do it? Who did you do it to? And who perceived you doing that? And I would answer those four things to activate the episodic memories in my mind, to read neuroplastically alter my brain. And I owned every one of them. I was nice and mean and kind and cruel and considerate and honest and dishonest. But I found every friggin' trait in that book inside me. And it was Montaigne who went around studying of the values around the world and show that no matter what you label good or bad, somebody's doing it and sees it the opposite out in the world. It's a nice pair of opposites. So I and it's a there's a law of heuristic escalation. The moment you label something evil, somebody else will turn around and play the other ones, like pro-life, pro-abortion, and pro-guns and anti-guns and pro-democrat, anti-democrat, pro-capitalism, monop monarchies and dictators versus democracies. There's all these pairs of opposites. When I went there and found them all, I noticed that when I saw people, instead of reacting, I immediately reflecting. And I, I instead of having deflective awareness, I had reflective awareness, introspected, realized I had it, and chuckled and realized that the only reason why I'm judging them and resenting them is because they're reminding me of what I'm feeling ashamed of in me. And the reason I'm ashamed about it is because I've injected some moral hypocrisy into my life from some outside authority that I gave power to and didn't think clearly through the illusion and actually own all parts of myself. How are we going to love ourselves if we're trying to deny parts of ourselves? I'm a firm believer that you got to love all parts of yourself, the hero, the villain, the saint, the sinner, all of them inside you. And when you do, there's a whole lot of liberty and a whole lot of love for other people because you get to love yourself finally. I love that, John. And I want to say yes and to that. So you gave a great example earlier, which I think we can all relate to. You're at the airport or you're waiting in line somewhere, the DMV, the airport, whatever it is, and there's a line and you get frustrated. What good does that serve us in this moment? So you have this profound realization, Dr. Martini, where you realize, okay, I have all 4,000 plus of these characteristics. I can see myself in every one of them. And yet we still have these moments of anger, upset, frustration. How does that apply to day life when you notice that you're getting triggered? What do you do in those moments? I immediately get my squirt gun out and start squirting everybody. <laughs> Good plan. I was seeing balloon, water balloon. Uh, that's a little kid in me, right? It, it varies. I think sometimes I get hooked and reactive and I just react if I'm not aware. But I know that I only have two fears 
and I hope everybody, whoever's listening this, realize into the amygdala, there's only two fears at the level of the amygdala, subcortical area of the brain. And that is the fear of loss of something I'm seeking, which is food, prey, and the fear of loss of it, which is starvation, or the fear of gain of what I'm trying to avoid, which is the predator and the fear of being eaten. Those are the two basic underlying fears that all fears boil down to, all stress boils down to. Because anything we seek, we fear it's lost, that's stressful. Anything we are trying to avoid, we fear it's gain, that's stressful. So when we have a thing like in the in a I'm in an airport, if I am fearing the loss of what I'm going to, let's say I'm going to go and talk, and I'm fearing the loss of not getting there, and now I'm letting down the people, or I'm not generating the income, or I'm not helping serve people, or I'm these people went out of their way to organize this. If I'm attached to that, I'm now going to be fearing the loss of it. So I immediately go in there and I ask, okay, so what's the downside of me showing up? <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming that I made the assumption that being with me has got more positives than negatives. But my grandfather thinks otherwise. She thinks if, if she says, if you look really carefully, there's just as many downsides hanging out with you. <laughs> I said, so that's what I think the purpose of a, a, a mate is to keep you back in authenticity. <laughs> If you're really cocky, they'll pull, bring you down. If you're down, they'll lift you up and let you know you're not that mad of a guy. But when I stopped and I do that, it humbles me. It softens the game. I, I find myself less proudly important about what I think should be. And I find that when I do that, I usually get a shift in the dynamic. There's an energetic shift that gets in the dynamic, and usually we find a solution. Or if I think I can come up with a solution alternative, I'll keep trying alternatives. If I can't, I'll sit down and go, okay, what's the benefit of what's going on? And and how does it serve the people that I'm not there? And who? what alternatives can we come up with and go to plan B? And if you don't have plan B and you're not having foresight, you're living by reaction and hindsight, you're living in the lowest heuristic you can be. Better to have foresight and to think, well, what, what, what could go wrong? I, I tell people, what is it you'd love to do? How do you get handsomely beautifully paid to do it so your vocation is your vacation? What are the highest priority actions I can do today to make that happen? What obstacles might I run into and how do I solve them in advance? If I ran in and the airport was delayed or if this happened, how do I solve them in advance so I'm not reactive and I'm proactive? If that's occurring, what worked today and what didn't work today? How do I do it more effectively and efficiently tomorrow? And no matter what happened, how did it help me get one step closer to what I'm dreaming about, what I'm working on? And I find that those questions help transform some of that charge on that. But I sometimes have to go in there, and sometimes I react. Our amygdala tends to go off first because it's got larger diameter neurons in our forebrain. So we tend to react first and then think. But if we already see both sides, we think before we react. So that's why a preemptive strike and preparing is much wiser than having to learn through trial and error. I wholeheartedly agree, Dr. Demartini. It's so true. And when I used to run a legal recruiting company many years ago, I coached a lot of job seekers for interviews. And I would teach them something called proactive versus reactive interviewing. Most of us just show up in life, to your point, and we're reacting to circumstances, questions, situations. Yep. We show up to relationships, to friendships. And it's funny, only in the last several years did I get diagnosed as being high-functioning high functioning autistic. And I didn't realize it, but because I was always saying the wrong thing or hurting people's feelings inadvertently when I was younger... I had to learn how to be proactive so I didn't keep putting my foot in my mouth or 
inadvertently saying the wrong thing or offending somebody. And in doing so, by learning to live the proactive life that I've learned how to live, it's taught me how to be a great wife, a great friend, a great business partner, because I know all of the potentialities of, uh uh-oh, if I stick my foot in my mouth again, then it's going to cause this person pain. And it's a domino effect. Even if you put your foot in your mouth, just figure take a picture of it and turn it into a yoga journal. (laughs) (laughs) True story. True story. I want to bring something up funny because you and I were talking before the show about synchronicities. And one of my favorite things to do every day is to write down the miracles and synchronicities in my life. And I had a beautiful one this morning, a friend on Facebook, Ken Hoffman, he often asks for different book recommendations. And out of the blue, I get a message from him today saying, Jennifer, there is this amazing book that you have to read. And it's been changing my life and my wife's life. And it's called The Values Factor by Dr. John Demartini. And I said, Ken, you're never going to believe this. I actually have an interview with John happening later on today. So I would love to have you maybe share as one of the closing things for today's interview, Dr. Demartini, this idea of manifestation, of having, experiencing that dream job, dream soulmate, dream house, living on a boat, whatever it is our dreams are, how do we align with it? I think there was something beautiful that he said is that you can't manifest that which you don't value. Can you just share a little bit about that? Because I think it's a beautiful insight for what we're going through today. Every human being, regardless of gender, spectrum, age, culture, whatever, has a set of priorities, a set of values, things that are most to least important in their life that's unique to them, like a fingerprint. No two people have exactly the same hierarchy of values. The hierarchy of values dictates how you perceive, decide, and act. Your sensory, inner neurons, and motor neuron behaviors. So in the way your brain is set up, it's a highest value-seeking organ that's doing what it can to fulfill what's most meaningful to it. And what's highest on our value is our ontological identity, our teleological purpose, our epistemological area of expertise. So prioritizing our life and filling our day with the highest priority actions we can and delegating lower priority actions give us a competitive advantage in the world. I teach, research, write, and travel. That's it. I don't do anything else. I haven't driven a car in 34 years almost. Me neither. <laughs> neither. I don't cook. I, I have people doing everything. I even have a clock changer. Somebody changes my clock. I got everybody doing everything except what I love doing, which is teach, research, write, and travel. That's it. So I learned that if I don't fill my day with absolute things that I'm absolutely inspired by and delegate the rest to people who would love to do those things, who are inspired to do those things, to surround yourself with people that are engaged and looking forward and dreaming about doing what I want to delegate and give them job opportunities, that liberates me to go and put my heart and soul into something that's deeply meaningful and allows me to go and serve people in my area of expertise. And that's that made a huge difference. When I was 27 years old, I read a book called The, the Time Trap by Ella McKenzie. And that one book woke me up on the power of delegation. And my little 970 square foot office with one little staff member that I had at the time 18 months later was five doctors, 12 staff members, 5,000 square foot offices, making tenfold amount of income. And people said, you have the money to delegate. No, I delegated and I made the income. And I tell people that unless you're prioritizing your life and prioritizing what you read, prioritizing what you're doing and prioritizing your time and space, what you eat, how you think, you're not taking command of it, living by design. You're going to live by duty. If you don't fill your day with high priority actions and inspire, it fills up with low priority distractions and don't. If you don't pursue challenges that inspire you, it fills up with challenges you don't want. And if you don't find the problems in the world you'd like to solve, you end up with the problems everybody else wants to impose on you. And so your life can transform from entropy to really life physics 
by simply prioritizing your life. And that's what the Values Factor book's about, how to do that in each of the areas of life, how to wake up your genius, how to wake up your business achievements, how to wake up your wealth, how to wake up your relationship fulfillment, how to go in and influence people in society and socially lead, how to wake up your vitality, and how to be inspired by your life so you can participate in a, an appreciation for the game of life that's offered. If you do that, then you can say thank you at the end of the day. Then you can keep all your synchronicities and your great miracles. And I have the biggest gratitude book of everybody I've ever met. It's 9,000 pages. I keep gratitudes every freaking day. Same. And people go, well, you're a nutcase. And I go, yeah, I'm a nutcase. I got so many gratitudes. I love writing them down every day. So I think that's the prioritization that leads that opportunity. And anybody can ch change their life. They can focus on their problems and be a victim of their history. They can focus on their solutions and be a master of their destiny. It's totally up to them. Yes. And I'm going to share with you what I'm hearing from our audience right now, Dr. Martini. Let's say one of our audience members, somebody out there right now, they're struggling. They have two kids. One of the children is often ill. They have on and off again jobs. It sounds good in theory, and I'm just playing devil's advocate with you because I want to be sure that we have the most value possible for our listeners and audience. Let's say, though, somebody doesn't have the resources to be able to hire or to delegate. What do you do in that way that could still be proactive and lead to all of these miracles and more things to be grateful for? People aren't going to like me, but I'm going to say it anyway. Okay. I was standing up at a church one time and speaking, and I said, if you're impoverished and you're poor, it's because you're not caring about human beings and caring enough about human beings to find out their needs and go out of your way to serve people. If you serve people and you do it in a sustainable, fair exchange manner, there's no lack of income and there's no lack of opportunity. So there, all we have to do is get out of our own self-pity and get on to doing something that's pretty, that's inspiring to other people and fill the needs of other people. My dad taught me that when I was nine. I said to my dad, I said, Ma, Dad, I want to buy a baseball and a glove and a bat. And he says, did you clean the, the sidewalk? Yes. Did you edge it? Yes. Did you mow the yard? Yeah. Did you weed the flower bed? Yes. Did you clean out the garage? Yes. Did you do all the trimming of the hedges? Yes. Did you tighten up the shales? Yes. Did you shine my shoes? Yes. Did you clean all the rooms? Yes. Then if it, there's nothing else that I have around me to be done, you need to go to the neighbors and go figure out how to go make some money. So I started my little business at nine. I had nine employees when I was nine. And I was making $45 after all my cost net back in 1963. And my dad taught me how to be a little entrepreneur. And I realized that there's never a lack of money to anybody that cares about human beings and goes ups and down the streets and asks, how can I be a service? So if you're sitting there not having resources, it's because you're not going to the source. <laughs> you're not activating the source. And it's easy to come up with excuses, but that's excuses and not going to get you results. And going and exemplifying that is the greatest thing you can do for your kids anyway. Exemplification is the greatest teacher. And if you show them how to be resourceful and do something amazing, they'll follow suit. Uh, I think that's very inspiring and so true. It's There is always someone out there. I remember very clearly one day I was in London with a man who had immigrated there. And he was telling me what a challenge it was. He was an Uber driver like you. I don't drive. And he was an Uber driver just saying, you know, I'm really having a hard time putting food on the table for my family and I don't know what to do. And I gave him like 12 ideas. I was like, listen, as an entrepreneur myself, I do podcasts. I need somebody to go in and edit videos and pull clips. I said, I pay people XYZ amount per hour to do this. I said, you can do that on YouTube. You can teach yourself just about anything you can imagine. And for those of us who don't find joy and fulfillment, maybe out of doing 
deep research or editing or whatever it might be, there's a YouTube video for any of that out there. Next thing you know, you put yourself on Fiverr, on Upwork, on any one of those, have three or four friends hire you on that website, give you reviews, you're off to the races, and you're now making money in an innovative new way maybe you never have before. Yeah, it's the unwillingness to learn, grow, and expand your adaptability. Because if you're not, if you're frightened and you're not inspired by what you're doing, you're frightened that you're going to hold yourself back and you're going to be expecting the world on the outside to do something. The people I know that are most unfulfilled are searching for the fantasy world of somebody on the outside rescuing them. They're looking for the hero on the outside instead of waking up the hero that they have within. Mm. Wow. Beautiful words, Dr. Martini. Tell everyone, I, I'm sure everybody's chomping at the bit to get The Values Factor and all the other 40 plus books you've written. Tell us where we can connect with you and the best way to do so. Simply go to drdmartini.com. That's my main, I think you'll find my name if you go in Martini. I think it's going to show up there because you know, the post office will probably find me there. <laughs> But the point is that just go drdmartini.com and there's a value determination process that's complimentary, free, and private on there. That's a little questionnaire that's a gold. You've got thousands of people, really millions of people around the world are using it. And it's a very useful tool to help you define what it is you really have as value. Because so many people, you ask them what their values are, they'll tell you BS. I'm amazed how many people don't know what they really value. They, they're so subordinate to the world around them and they're letting the voices on the outside run instead of themselves. And they don't really know what's important. Deep inside they do, but they let the power of the outside world influence it and scatter them and cloud their minds. Take the time to go on this little questionnaire, the value, determine your values, it's called, on drdmartin.com. It's worth the time spent. It'll help you clarify what really is important to you. Because if you set goals according to that's where you begin to excel again. Dr. Marti, it's been way too long since we did this. I am so happy to have had you back here. And I'm intending that for each and every one of us, as we listen today, now in the future, whenever you might be listening, that maybe you've been inspired. Maybe Dr. Martini sparked a light that matched that flame inside of you of a burning desire that allows us to get out of bed and that each and every one of us in these coming days, weeks, months, and years, that we get out of bed every day with a joy in our soul and a meaningful life that we are grateful for. I am Jennifer K. Hill, CEO of OptiMatch, Om.app. And as always, it is a privilege and honor to get to be with each and every one of you. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Martini. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of Regarding Consciousness with Jennifer K. Hill. We would love it if you would take a moment and write a review for us or rate us on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And if you'd like to stay in touch and find out about upcoming events with some of the amazing guests we've had on the show, like Deepak Chopra and other world thought leaders, feel free to join my email list at metabizics, M-E-T-A-B-I-Z-I-C-S, Dot com. Again, that's metabizics.com. And you can go ahead and join our email list there. Thanks so much. And we look forward to having you join us next week.